This is MIT Technology Review. I think around five to six months, they said she has something called ataxia telangiectasia. And they said, this doesn't have any cure. The initial days were very tough. We were crying all the time. Then after a while, we started investigating what can be done. Mehmet Kuzu's three-year-old daughter, Ipek, has a rare genetic mutation that could end her life by age 25. But now she's getting a so-called antisense drug engineered specifically for her, which makes Ipek one of the first patients being swept up in a new wave of hyper-personalized medicine. Journalist Erica Czech Hayden wrote about the Kuzu family in the latest issue of Technology Review. And today, she helps us understand where this breakthrough came from and how soon it might be scaled up. I'm Wade Rausch, and this is Deep Tech. right at the beginning of a revolution in what's being called individualized genomic medicine. And if you want to know what that revolution sounds like, this is a good place to start. That's the sound of one of the high-speed gene sequencing machines at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Here at the Broad's genomics platform in Cambridge, there are so many of these machines that the institute can read out the equivalent of 30 whole human genomes every 10 minutes. There aren't a lot of research centers with that kind of power. But in many places around the world, it's now possible to scan a baby's full genome for just a few hundred dollars and locate DNA coding errors that can cause rare conditions like ataxia telangiectasia. That's how doctors diagnosed Ipek Kuzu when she was just six months old. The mistake in her DNA means her cells can't make a protein called ATM that's essential for DNA repair. Over the long run, that causes a loss of brain cells, which means Ipek has some trouble walking and doesn't talk as much as a typical three-year-old. Today, Ipek is receiving an antisense drug made just for her. It's designed to compensate for the DNA mistake and restore production of ATM, which makes Ipek only the second person in the world to get this kind of treatment. The first was another little girl named Mila Makabek. She has a different genetic disorder called Batten disease that causes blindness, seizures, and other neurodegenerative problems. And Mila got her own customized antisense drug starting in 2018. But to understand how researchers came up with these two drugs, and why this whole field of hyper-personalized medicine is so hot that the editors of Technology Review decided to put it on this year's list of 10 breakthrough technologies, first we have to jump back a few years to 2016. Ioness Pharmaceuticals higher in pre-market trading. The FDA has approved a drug called Spinraza. Spinraza. They, you know, uh, it's it, not Spinraza. Maybe it is it's because it's, it's for spinal muscular atrophy. It's the first drug approved to treat the rare and fatal disease. Spinal muscular atrophy affects about one in ten thousand babies. So it's not quite as rare as Batten disease or ataxia telangiectasia. But Spinraza is literally the key to all of the more recent work to make customized antisense drugs for Mila and Ipec. So let's take a minute to go over how it works. 
What made spinraza a big deal was that it was one of the first successful medicines made using an antisense oligonucleotide. In other words, a customized strand of RNA. And if you can imagine inside a cell, there's the DNA. This is Antonio Regalado, the editor for biomedicine at Technology Review. And it kind of sends out these messages into the nucleus made of RNA, and that those are used as the templates to make proteins. And so antisense is a drug that acts at the level of RNA. They're going to stick to that RNA message, and they could block it. Keep or it from being translated into a protein. Exactly. Keep it from being translated or modify the translation in some fashion. In the cells of healthy people, there's a protein called SMN that helps motor neurons survive and grow. A gene called SMN1 carries the instructions for making that protein. And people with spinal muscular atrophy have a mutation that disables that gene. But it just so happens that human DNA also contains a second copy of the gene, called SMN2. The second copy is typically inactive, thanks to a small error that keeps the RNA message from being spliced together into a proper template. The spinraza molecule contains a short segment of antisense RNA that prevents the splicing error. And that allows the body to start making the motor neuron protein. Ionis Pharmaceuticals is the company that makes Spinraza, and they put a lot of work into figuring out how to get their molecule into the brain and the nervous system, where it can do its work. Um, and they finally mastered it and came up with a pretty much kind of a miracle drug for spinal muscular atrophy. And so from that example, um, people have then said, well, why can't we use antisense for other diseases that are similar? And what we learned was that there was a doctor in Boston named Timothy Yu. He actually was an expert in sort of sequencing genomes of six children. And there was a one girl named Mila Makovec, and uh, her parents had come to him and he'd sequenced the genome. And then he just realized, I don't have to stop here. Once I've identified this defect, I don't have to stop. I could potentially make a drug. And so that's exactly what he did. It turned out that Mila's disease was caused by a splicing error very similar to the one that causes spinal muscular atrophy, except that in Mila's case, it disrupts a different protein called CLN7. Tim Yu's idea was to take the backbone of the spinraza molecule and attach a customized strand of antisense RNA. With this new business end, so to speak, the drug would theoretically enable Mila's cells to start making functional copies of the CLN7 protein. So we then became aware of this, of this particular case that, that was probably at that point, just the clearest, starkest, most stunning example of this hyper-personalized medicine. Because in this case, it was really for one person, right? So we're very interested in this uh, phenomenon because it's a reflection of what technology can do. And then uh, in the middle of last year, um, a pretty prominent journalist, Erica Check Hayden, uh, came to us. And she was also interested and wanted to do some work to find the cases, find the families, and write more stories about it. So we signed her up to do a few stories about this ultra-personalized medicine. And as it developed, we decided, well, let's, let's put this on our list of breakthrough technologies, because it really is. And so Erica ended up writing about the piece, and she did a lot of work to find the patients, because there's, there's a certain degree of secrecy around the patients, or you may not know who they are. And so one of the great things she did was to find this Kuzu family, which happens to be right here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Erica, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Sure. My name is Erica Check Hayden. 
I'm a journalist based in San Francisco, and I also run the science communication program at the University of California, Santa Cruz. When you set out to start reporting this piece, did you feel like it was important to go beyond the first sort of headline-making case of Mila Makovec and look for additional patients who were going through this process to see how broadly applicable the whole idea is? I do think that while people have been very impressed by Mila's case and by the drug that Tim Yu made for her, which is called Milasen, I think there's also been this question of are we going to be able to do this for other patients? And if so, you know, who is going to be treatable via this method? And so um, going out and finding other families that are hopefully replicating that success, I think is a really important um, statement about how um, impactful this approach might eventually be. So maybe this is where the Kuzu family comes in. So could you tell us a little bit about them and how you got in touch with them? The Kuzu family, they were they originally came from Turkey and um, the father in the family, Mehmet Kuzu, is now a software engineer at Google and they were living in Silicon Valley when their daughter Epek was born. And soon after she was born, she was diagnosed with this disease called ataxia telangiectasia, which is also called AT disease. And when that happened, you know, they set about trying to understand if there was anything they could do to treat the disease or slow the disease. Um, and that's what led Mehmet down this path that eventually led him to work with Tim Yu. I sent the reports of genetic report of our daughter and then he said oh, there is a uh, potential here like but there, there are two main things like two main problems he said this might cost a, around like two million and insurance will not cover it the second problem it might cause damage because like, we don't know right we have a like theoretical idea, but biology is complicated. So at the end of the day, it might be worse than what is expected. Right. So for the Kuzu family, while it was obviously bad news that your kid is getting diagnosed with AT disease, there is this amazing foundation or nonprofit led by Brag Margus, the AT Children's Project. And they wind up helping to finance a lot of this research and even finance EPEX treatment. Right. And I think that's part of why this particular project was able to move so fast. You know, Brad Margus and the AT Children's Project had done a lot of work over the years to fundraise and educate their community about the potential for treating this disease so that when they found something that he actually thought could work, they were able to raise $1.4 million in a relatively short amount of time to fund the development of this unique drug. I think he understood the promise of it and then he agreed to financially support but the problem is this money in the pool is coming from many families uh, so it is not fair that okay like IPEC will get this right so we should have a, some fair selection then they found 
three kids that in young age, like two, three, four, like with the right mutation type. They got skin samples from all of them and tested its function on cell lines. They were able to do it quickly. Mehmet can recount all of these events pretty calmly, but I think it's worth taking a second to underscore what a roller coaster the family has been on. When the AT Children's Project got involved, it opened a window for Tim Yu to design and manufacture an antisense drug for AT disease. But the required toxicology and safety testing is so expensive that there was only enough money to do that for one patient. There was a two out of three chance that Ipec would not be that patient. And even if she did get selected, there was no way for her parents to know whether the treatment would be effective. Since Mila started getting her antisense treatment, she'd been having fewer seizures, but doctors still weren't 100% sure that that was because of the medicine. On top of all that, there was still the risk of unintended side effects. At the end of the day, Ipex cell responded the best among uh, these three, thing, three candidates. Now, once we know we are selected, now we concentrate on the second issue, like, do we really want to take this risk of, like, making things worse? And then I thought, like, most probably something good will happen. Of course, there is a probability of, like, this bad possibility. But even if that happens, science will learn from this. And her kind of sacrifice and that would help to many other people. It's been just incredible over the past few years to meet these families, understand what they're doing, how they're doing it. Also, the mindset that they bring to this, where you know, you'll talk to or I will talk to parents who are doing this for their kids, and they've had scientists tell them, you've got to be prepared for the possibility that this isn't going to help your kid. You know, you might be doing all of this work on behalf of some other future child. You know, this might not come in time to help your own child. And they persist and are really driven. Okay, so in the same way that Tim Yu helped to create this unique drug called Milicin for Mila Makovac, he's created a drug called Adipexin for EPEC. If that drug works, how will it help EPEC? If this drug works, basically what it's going to do is correct the way that EPEX cells interpret her genetic information so that she will make a functioning copy of the ATM protein. Now, how we will know if this is working is a bit of a tricky question. Um, so Tim Yu and other doctors are going to try a variety of methods to see if they can tell whether the drug is actually helping her. So for instance, they will look at things like, can they see evidence in EPEC's um, body that the drug is actually making corrected versions of the protein? Um, they will look for evidence that she isn't um, declining in the ways that we might expect her to if she wasn't um, getting treatment to help control her disease. So there are a variety of things that doctors are going to look for, but it might be tricky to tell whether it actually works or not. She had three injections until this point because like, they are starting with very low dose and escalating it. Fortunately, we haven't seen any adverse effects in the first three dose. 
but like of course knowing if this is really working or not uh, they told us that it will take time maybe we need a year to understand if it really is working uh, but at least we have seen that no bad thing happened yeah at every two weeks in this those escalations we are staying 24 hours at hospital she's going under full anesthesia with their putting mask and after the injection they are taking bloods every four hours three or four times these are very stressful for her like she's fighting not to have this mask uh, she's crying a lot uh, but once this charge happens once we come home she forgets about everything she just plays with her toys Right. And this is one of the things you mentioned in your piece as well, that not only will it be tricky to see whether it's working or not, but we're talking about, by definition, an end of one study where there's only one patient. So you don't get the kinds of large numbers that help researchers feel more confident that a drug is safe and effective. So that's a, a big question mark around this whole field, right, of hyperpersonalized medicine. How do you determine whether a drug is working or not? I think what we still don't know very well yet is, you know, which diseases are going to be helped most by this approach, or even if any of these individual customized treatments um, can cure a patient. So if you talk to Mila's mom, Julia Vitarello, she is very convinced that that drug has helped Mila. Um, but I think accumulating that data to the level where we really know that this is a worthwhile approach, you know, that's probably going to take a while to take a step back. I think that's part of the reason why these drugs are only being used right now in patients that have really severe progressive diseases, because you are taking a certain risk by giving a treatment to a patient when you haven't done the kinds of safety testing that we might be used to for a drug that would normally go through an uh, FDA approval process. Um, in fact, there are some people who object to even using the word treatment because we don't necessarily know that these drugs are, are going to cure the patients. In the meantime, I think everybody would like to see far more patients at least be able to try this. And so there's this question as to whether it's only going to be patients who have the resources to raise that money or access that money that are going to benefit. And I don't think anybody wants that to be the case, but how we're going to help more families and patients get access to that treatment, that's something that people are really grappling with. Are there any signs that the drug industry is looking at how to scale up some of these treatments and, you know, maybe create a pipeline for hyperpersonalized drugs? So we're seeing things like um, Ionis. Their co-founder, Stan Crook, has started a foundation called the Enlorum Foundation that's going to try to develop these treatments for patients. Specifically, the reason why is that developing a drug for one patient that costs millions of dollars and doesn't really have a very large market is not something that's necessarily going to be attractive to a company. I think there is a direction that could evolve where 
you know, if the drug industry is better able to manufacture these drug templates or backbones and more easily switch out the, you know, the part of the drug that's the business end that's doing the targeting of different genetic diseases um, to where that becomes much more large scale, much more customizable, much cheaper, you know, then you might see um, a model where this is much more economical, affordable, reimbursed by insurance companies, because right now this is not, and obviously that's a major cost barrier. Do you think this is a time for patients with rare genetic disorders and families of those patients to feel more hopeful? Right. It goes back to the question, should this be a breakthrough technology? Should it be? Because right now it's not helping that many people. We're talking about helping one person, or we're talking about helping two or three. It's very few people. And that's a strike against the idea, frankly. Like, why, why should we invest resources into this when it helps so few people? Why should we call it a breakthrough technology? Well, the reason to is, is it's sweet. Technically, it's sweet. And it paints a path towards a future where, like, you can do a lot more with genetic drugs. So you can imagine a future not 100 years away, but maybe 10 years away, where this can be scaled up and broadened out to more patients. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, will the drugs work? How well will they work? It's kind of an open question, but um, yeah, we've already gone from one case to five cases, and next year, no doubt it'll be 10, and then 100, and then uh, thousands, uh, most likely. I want to raise something else, is which uh, this whole scenario is not fair. Because there's a lot of people with rare diseases and a lot of kids dying of rare disease in every neighborhood, in every corner, in every precinct of the country and of the world. So who has the opportunity to have this chance? Well, who does so far? Well, it is a, it is a very small subset of parents who, for whatever reason, have the ability to wrap their head around the science, to find where the opportunity is, and to raise quite a lot of money. And this is not bake sale money. This is $2 million, $3 million. You have to really have a way to do that. And it favors people with a big network. That's why we're seeing people, you know, entrepreneurs, people from Silicon Valley, or other people who just, for whatever reason, uh, managed to pull it off. If this kind of inequity persisted, it would definitely become a huge point of criticism around this whole area of therapy. But maybe you could look at these parents as the pioneers. Right. A lot of the parents will say, well, in addition to trying to help my child, I also want to invest and try and create the process by which everybody else can be helped because they also have a lot of empathy for the next person. The idea is to help everybody. The pathway to doing that is not clear yet. Could you get there? Sure. All right. Well, whether this is a breakthrough or not, it raises so many interesting and thorny questions that it's, uh, it's perfect fodder for technology review. Oh, it's definitely a breakthrough, man. <laughs> it's definitely a breakthrough. All right. Thanks, Antonio. Yeah. That's it for this edition of Deep Tech. This is a podcast we're making exclusively for MIT Technology Review subscribers to help bring alive some of the people and ideas you'll find in the pages of our website and our print magazine. But the first four episodes cover our annual 10 Breakthrough Technologies issue, and we're making those episodes free for everyone. Deep Tech is written and produced by me and edited by Michael Riley with editorial help this week from Jennifer Strong. Our theme is by Title Card Music and Sound in Boston. Special thanks this week to David Cameron, Howard Gelman, Erica Check-Hayden, Mehmet Kuzu, Antonio Regalado, and Jane Wilkinson. I'm Wade Rausch. Thanks for listening, 
and we hope to see you back here for our next episode in two weeks.